Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. that introduction. Um, uh, what you just said about me goes double for you in terms of someone being a nuanced thinker and, uh, and just a fundamentally decent human being. Um, and as I, as I mentioned this, this afternoon, um, in the session or this afternoon, it's particularly to, wonderful to be here at the Valley Beit Midrash. Um, as I mentioned this afternoon, it talks about itself on its website as being a space that models the, and inspires and teaches the value of pluralism. And we need those kind of spaces today more than ever. So I really feel very fortunate to be here. Um, so our topic this afternoon is does Christianity matter for Judaism and vice versa? Does Christianity matter for Judaism and vice versa? Let me first try to say something about what I'm not asking, what we're not going to be asking tonight. We're not asking the question, can Jews and Christians get along? Right? The answer is yes. We have ample empirical confirmation from the wonderful interfaith work that happens in our world today, in this community, in this room right here, that Jews and Christians can get along. So that's not the question I'm asking. I'm also not asking the question, um, are Christianity and Judaism related to one another historically? Again, clearly the answer is yes. While Christianity has become a religion distinct from Judaism, Christianity emerges from... Uh, uh, from within Judaism. Christi what we now call Christianity emerges um, uh, from a movement in first century Judaism uh, among Jews who see a charismatic Jewish teacher named Jesus as the Messiah, as the figure anointed to usher in, help inaugurate the Messianic era, a kind of radically new era at the end of history. Um, and we already see this kind of conception of Jesus as a Jewish figure in many of the foundational texts of Christianity. If we look at the New Testament itself, Jesus is emphatically presented as a figure within the Judaism of his era. So you see that on the first passage on your handout. This is from, uh, from, the, uh, from the Gospels, from the books at the beginning of the New Testament that tell the narrative of Jesus' life. This is from a Gospel called Matthew. Can I have a volunteer to read that first passage on the handout where it says these 12 disciples. Thank you. These 12 disciples, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. <clears throat> go nowhere among the Gentiles, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. As you go, proclaim the good news, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So at least in this passage, to whom are Jesus' disciples, to whom are Jesus' followers supposed to be spreading their message? Jews. The Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Now, over the course of the New Testament narrative, this changes. Jesus um, eventually instructs his followers to proclaim this message to non-Jews as well. And we have many books of the New Testament, for example, the letters of Paul, that talk about how this proclamation of the kingdom of heaven is then carried forth both to Jews and to non-Jews. But again, at least in this passage, Jesus is presented as a first-century Jew talking to other first-century Jews. So just as I'm not asking the question of whether um, Jews and Christians can get along, I'm not asking the question of whether Judaism and Christianity are related to one another. Instead, I thought we could wrestle with a different question. Does Christianity matter for Judaism? And does Judaism matter for Christianity? Do I, as a Jew, need to learn about Christianity? Do I, if I'm a Christian, need to learn about Judaism? Does someone become a better Jew by learning about Christianity? Does someone become a better Christian by learning about Judaism? Is Jude, so this is going to be the this is exactly going to be the issue we're going to talk about it and I and I love that you said yes and that's I think going to be the voice we're going to hear in the two thinkers we're going to encounter but it's not obvious to me at least in advance that the answer is yes right I think there are good reasons in fact based on how I'm sorry right so and this is actually what we're going to have to wrestle with I think in particular because if we look at the way we often talk about Judaism and Christianity in today's world um, those ways of talking about Judaism and Christianity don't make it immediately obvious that these traditions matter for one another, that you sort of need to learn about the other to be a better version of your own tradition. Right? So one of the ways we often talk about Judaism and Christianity is to celebrate their differences, to celebrate their particularity. Judaism can't be reduced to Christianity. Christianity can't be reduced to Judaism. These are different traditions with their own beliefs, their own texts, their own rich histories. We need to respect their differences. But if that's the case, it's not immediately obvious why one matters for the other, right? If Judaism and Christianity are utterly distinct from one another, it's not immediately obvious how I become a better Jew by learning about Christianity, how I become a better Christian by learning about Judaism. They don't seem to have enough in common for one to matter for the other. Another way we sometimes talk about Judaism and Christianity is not to celebrate their differences, but to celebrate their similarities. Judaism and Christianity, we often hear people say, are just different paths to the same goal. They have the same basic moral truth, the same basic conception of God. They're just different ways of getting to the same place. Exactly. Judeo-Christian tradition talk is Judaism and Christianity are fundamentally similar to one another. And if that's the case, right, if there really is this Judeo-Christian tradition, again, it's not obvious, at least to me, why I need to learn about one to inhabit the other, right? If Judaism and Christianity are basically the same, and I'm Jewish, all I encounter from learning Christ about Christianity is myself in another form. If I'm Christian and Judaism is just another version of Christianity, all I encounter is myself in another form. It's not in the end obvious I've learned something different at the end of the day. So as much as we're going to at least encounter thinkers who will get to the direction of, yes, these matter for one another, it's not immediately obvious to me, at least, that they do. Or it's not immediately obvious to me why they might matter for one another. So I thought this could be the issue we take up tonight. I thought we could wrestle with this question of whether these traditions matter religiously for one another. Yes? May I just throw another opinion, not to offend Okay, so another version of this argument, 
Another version of this argument would be to say, this is a, right, there's going to be a yes and no answer to my question. Another version of this argument would be to say, Judaism matters a great deal for Christianity. Maybe because Judaism is historic of the basis, maybe because Jews somehow preserve teachings that are important for Christianity. There might be ways in which Judaism matters for Christianity because Christianity can affirm the validity or the importance of Judaism, but maybe it doesn't go in the other direction. There are thinkers who will take that view. So again, there are lots of ways we might talk about these traditions where it's not obvious that the answer is yes. And so what I thought we could do this evening is kind of ask this question. Right? Are there ways of thinking about these traditions where they matter for one another? And I thought we could move in three stages. I thought we could begin with some texts from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Bible, from a sort of set of texts that matter to both traditions. Then I thought we could look at a contemporary Jewish voice who wants to make the case that he is a better Jew in virtue of learning about Christianity. And then I thought we could look at a contemporary Christian voice who wants to make the better case that he is a better Christian in virtue of learning about Judaism. Does this seem reasonable as a way to move forward? Kind of Bible, Jewish voice, Christian voice? Okay. Um, and just a sort of methodological point here. Um, I'm throwing these texts out here not because I necessarily agree or disagree with them, but because I think they'll help us have a conversation. So I want to invite us, as we're reading these texts, to be kind of open and vulnerable to the way these texts might make sense, but also open and vulnerable to the ways in which these texts might not make sense. And this will be a conversation we'll have in the room. So let's begin with, uh, with the Hebrew Bible. So one of the key... Um, events that happens in the Hebrew Bible is that the children of Israel, the Israelites, the ancestors of the Jews, are commanded to build a temple, a central house of worship in Jerusalem. And it's an Israelite king named Solomon who builds this temple. And I thought the first passages we could look at together are from the biblical account of the construction of this temple, of the construction of this central house of worship. Um, so I get a volunteer to read the first passage under God in the Hebrew Bible. It says, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Thank you so much. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. With regard to this house you are building, if you follow my laws and observe my rules and faithfully keep my commandments, I will fulfill for you the promise I gave to your father David. I will abide among the children of Israel, and I will never forsake my people Thank you so much. And can someone pick up with the next passage as well? Thank you. After the temple was built, the cloud had filled the house of the Lord, and the priests were not able to remain and perform the service because of the cloud. For the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon declared, The Lord has chosen to abide in a thick cloud. I have now built for you a safety house, a place where you may dwell. I will abide among the children of Israel. I will abide among the children of Israel. What might the text mean here when it has God say that God will abide among the children of Israel? What might that mean? Yes. Okay, so it might mean that God is everywhere. Any other readings of what it might mean to say that God is going to abide among the children of Israel? Okay. So it might be a claim, if, if one way of reading it is that this is a claim about God's kind of omnipresence, 
God is everywhere. Another way of reading it is that God is in a very specific place in and among this particular group. Now, how about in that next passage where it says that God is going to abide, God is going to dwell in a thick cloud, and then it says the cloud had filled the house of the Lord and the priests were not able to remain and perform the service because of the cloud, for the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What might the text mean when it says the presence of the Lord filled the house of the Lord and God abides in this thick cloud? This might not be taking it as far as you are thinking, but I guess this is the whole idea of the Shekinah, right? The presence of God. Um, but as to just how it relates to religious Jewish people, I'm not sure, except that it was pretty special. You know, that this is where God appeared among the people of Israel in their temple. Okay, so this is a claim about God's presence. The Shekhinah language is going to appear a little later in the tradition, but this is absolutely from the same root of God dwelling and being present. This is a God being present, and you said this is about God being present in the temple. This is about God being present in a particular location, right? God is there in this cloud, and this cloud is filling this location, and it's filling this location so intensely that the priests actually can't do their job. Right? It's not saying God is there and God is present in this nice metaphorical sense and everyone felt spiritually elevated. God is there so intensely that people are actually overwhelmed. This cloud in which God dwells is there in this location. What words or phrases would you use to describe the depiction of God presented here? Okay. You know, the whole time the Israelites are walking in the desert. Okay. God is in, in a cloud and going in front of the tabernacle and all of that kind of stuff. So this is not the first time. Okay. So I'm assuming it's just repeating in a way okay. God's presence within the Israelite community going all the way back to, to the Exodus. Okay, so first thing we're hearing is that this picture of this God present in this location, this is not a new idea. This is an idea we get elsewhere in the Bible. You see it, in fact, in the very next passage on the handout where it says you shall offer sacrifices at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. This is an earlier point in the Bible where the Israelites haven't yet gotten to the land of Israel. They're wandering in the desert after Egypt. They have a kind of portable sanctuary known as the tabernacle. They have a kind of thing they call the tent of meeting. And God says there, offer sacrifices at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. For there I, God, will meet with you, and there I will speak with you, and there I will meet with the Israelites, and it shall be sanctified by my presence. I will abide among the Israelites, and I will be their, cloud, their, their God. Um, right again, we have this image of God being present in a specific location. God doesn't say, hey, wherever you are, let's have a chat. I can hear you wherever you are. God says, go to this location. We're going to talk there. And in fact, this location is so important. My presence is so intense. It's going to be sanctified. It's going to be made holy. Right? God's presence is intensely in this particular location. Okay, so one adjective we might use to describe this picture of God is familiar. Right? This is a picture of God 
being intensely present that we've heard elsewhere. Any other words or phrases we might use to describe this picture of God we're getting here? This God who is present in the temple in this kind of overwhelming cloud. Yeah. Okay, so one possibility could be this means God is everywhere, right? If God is in the temple, maybe God is everywhere. Yeah? But this is the meeting place. It's Ohel Moed. That's where you meet him. That's where you communicate. Okay, so if one reading is this means God is everywhere, another reading is this means the opposite of that. This means there are specific locations where God is intensely present. God... Okay. Okay, so maybe God can be felt everywhere, but there are places where that presence is different. God isn't equally, I'll get to the hand in one second, God isn't equally accessible everywhere. God may be everywhere, God may hear you everywhere, but you can't just worship God everywhere on this model. There are some locations where God is more present or differently present than other locations. This seems to be the model here. Hand here, hand there, hand there, hand there. I'm now forgetting the order. We'll just kind of make a loop in this direction here. So we'll start here and move around. Yes? So all of these places that we are talking about mm-hmm. are communal. Okay. So God is present in areas where we are together. We are doing stuff together as a community, as a... So it's more than just communicating with one of us somewhere, wherever we can find it. But it's important for God at that point to be in places where there is a community. Okay, so this is about not just a kind of intense divine presence in certain places, but an intense divine presence in particular kind of locations. God is somehow present not just in locations, but among people. Right? This isn't just that there's this ab- kind of nice abandoned place over there and God's kind of hanging out there. It's actually God is somehow in and among the people there. It's a claim about radical divine presence and radical divine presence in and among human beings. Like I said, hand here, hand there, hand there. Yes? God, <clears throat> we're getting into something. What are the attributes of God? God is either finite or God is infinite. It's not both. People who wrote the Tanakh at that time, I do not believe had a concept of the infinite inside. Okay. So we have a finite type of thing here. And we have to look at it as symbolic rather than anything else. Because now we look at God as being infinite, okay? being finite, then God could be in several places. But it would not be God. God has to be infinite by definition. Okay. So part of what we're hearing here is that Um, In the text itself, this emphasis on divine presence and God being more present in specific locations, maybe in and among specific people, for the authors of this text, this is linked to uh, maybe a different conception of God than some of us might have today, right? This isn't a kind of God who is always everywhere. At least in this text, this is a God who's in this location differently than God is in other locations, right? This is a picture of a God who is present and localized. 
and maybe can kind of do things in different places, but this is a deeply localized and present God. Um, a God who isn't infinite, at least in the way we often talk about God being infinite. Hand there, hand there, and then I'm going to try to summarize what I've heard so far. So uh, the, this passage from Exodus ends with, um, and I will be their God. Um, so the Israelites leave Egypt, and there doesn't seem to be any concern from God that the Egyptians worship God. You know, the Israelites left, hey, you Egyptians, go back to whatever you were doing. And, and I'm going to be with this group of people, and I will speak to this group of people. I'm not particularly interested in speaking to the Egyptians. We're out of here, and we're going to be a community in the desert. Yeah. Right. So this gets back to this question of being present in and among people. This God is present in and among people, but in and among specific people. This isn't a God who says, by the way, I'm going to meet you at this tent of meeting, but that other group has their own tent of meeting, that other group has their own tent of meeting, the folks over there have it, right? This is a God who is specifically present in specific locations among specific people. Final thought here, and then I'll try to summarize what I'm hearing. Okay, so part of what we're hearing is, right, um, we have this picture of this deeply present God, this intensely present God in specific locations among specific people, and it's not immediately obvious how we should be reacting to this picture, right? On the one hand, this might be an attractive picture. Surely we want God to be present but it might also be a troubling picture. Maybe it suggests limitations on the part of God. Maybe that's troubling for us. Maybe it also suggests that there's something dangerous or overwhelming about this, right? That God's presence is somehow overwhelming. Maybe this picture of an intensely present God is troubling because it suggests limitations on God. Maybe it's troubling because it suggests a kind of presence of God in our world that might trouble us. Maybe it's troubling because of the exclusivity implied there, right? It seems to be a God who's some places and not other places, who's in and among some people and not in and among other people. I'm hearing two things around the room right now. I'm hearing, first of all, that this is a picture of an intensely present God a God who is present in and among specific people, in specific locations. This God may in principle be accessible everywhere, but this is a God who's not equally accessible everywhere. This is not a picture of a God who is everywhere in the same way. This is a picture of a God who's present in some places in a way that that God is not present in other places. And this is a picture of a God who's present with among some people in a way that God might not be present among other people. So that's the first thing I'm hearing. This is an intensely um, um, uh, a kind of presence-based picture of God, God being intensely present in locations. And second, I'm hearing that it's not immediately obvious how we want to react to that. We might find this to be a troubling picture. Did anyone find this to be an attractive picture of God? Yeah, why, is this, why did you find this to be an attractive picture of God? Okay, say more, say more about why, what you mean by that and why that makes us an attractive picture of God. Well, I don't believe there's any such thing as spirits. I believe, for instance, when we talk about a witch, 
this different realm that's completely different from anything we experience. What we experience is. What God is, is. And they are, in one sense, in the same way. Okay, so maybe part of what's attractive about this picture of God is it closes the gap between God and humanity. Rather than imagining God as something out there, utterly different from us, utterly inaccessible to us, utterly beyond us, this imagines the human divine gap being closed. It imagines us dwelling next to God, living um, near God, um, being in God's presence, right? It closes a kind of otherwise gap, right? It's easy to think of God as something utterly accessible, inaccessible. This makes God deeply accessible. It means God might be sitting next to me in some robust sense. Yeah? But, but I'm not comfortable with the exclusivity of okay. evil opportunity God is more appealing. Okay, so we, if, we, if, one, if we might like this picture of God because it imagines a God who is... Um, deeply accessible, we might be worried about this God because maybe this God isn't accessible enough. We want God to be present enough that we can access God, but not so present that God is some places and not others, among some people and not others. Okay, so I'm hearing two things around the table. I'm hearing first that this is a picture of an intensely present God, and I'm hearing, hearing second that this is a picture of God that we might be attracted to, but that we might also shy away from. We might find this to be a picture of God that closes that gap between God and us, allows us to finally encounter God, but we might find it to be a picture of God that makes God so present as to actually undermine that presence. To us, to right, exactly, exactly. And this is a picture of God, I should say, that's not isolated to this one passage about the temple. We saw this with the... Um, Second passage about the tent of meeting. We actually see it at the very beginning of the Bible in the Genesis narrative, in the creation narrative. You, uh, you'll remember in the creation narrative, God has plopped two human, that's a technical theological term, plop. God has plopped two human beings in the Garden of Eden. And we get the following description of their encounter with God. This is the first passage on the second page. Can I get uh, a volunteer to read this passage where it says the first human beings? Thank you. First human beings heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden of Eden at the breezy time of day. First human beings heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden of Eden at the breezy time of day. Human beings hear God moving around. God is intensely present here. You can hear the branches crunching underneath God's foot. You can hear God moving through the bramble. Apparently this is how I move. I live in Colorado now, but I'm a New Yorker originally, so apparently this is how I think you move through brambles, which I'm sure is not the case. Um, right? You can hear God moving through the shr shrubbery. is probably an even less good term than brambles. You get the idea. You can hear God moving through the trees and at the breezy time of day, so you can hear God moving through the wind. You can hear the wind whipping through God's body. Right? This is a picture of an intensely present God, a God that's so present you can hear God making noise. First human beings heard the sound of God moving about at the breezy time of day. God is not a very quiet hiker, the story suggests. So we get this picture of this deeply, in intensely present God, a God who is present in and among human beings almost in this physical kind of way. And this might be a really attractive picture. This might be a troubling picture. We might be drawn to it. We might be wary of it. With this in mind, I want to turn now to a contemporary Jewish voice who wants to think about why Judaism and Christianity matter for one another, or in his case, why Christianity matters for Judaism. This is a, yes, it looks like you have a question. 
what has this got to do with the subject of Judaism and Christianity? We're going to get there in a second. We're going to get there in a second. We're going to see that this picture of God, this biblical picture of God that shows up again and again in the Bible is going to be absolutely crucial to contemporary Jewish thinkers who want to ask the question of why Christianity matters for Judaism. Well, the people at that time had to have a feeling of God as being something that's finite and there. And, and the evolution of the concept of God, it, this idea of presence was there. It's the same thing they had to have a, the golden calf made because that gave them the presence of God. They were able to touch it and see it. Okay? In Christianity, <coughs> Jesus itself was able to be touched by them. He was an identity type of thing. He was not infinite. They could accept that far better than the infinite in their thinking. Well, we're actually going to see that one contemporary Jewish thinker, contemporary Orthodox Jewish thinker, Michael Wishagrod, who's going to pick up on exactly these themes and say that while he doesn't think Judaism can accept Jesus, he's going to say that the Christian idea of Jesus being both divine and human matters for Jews. He's going to say that if you really want to be a serious Jew who takes the Bible seriously, you're going to have to um, uh, have, be in conversation with Christians. Not because Jews believe in Jesus. He wants to reject the idea that Jews believe in Jesus, but because being exposed to that idea is going to matter for Jews. But we're going to get there momentarily. We're going to have to read a little bit of Wishagrod, and then we're going to see what he thinks. And we might agree with him, we might disagree with him. That's going to be one of the tasks we're going to have to undertake as a kind of learning community tonight. So with this issue in mind, exactly the issue you're raising now, and with this picture of God as intensely present, I want to turn to a contemporary Jewish thinker who takes up this idea of God's presence, who takes up this idea of God being present in and among people. And this is a contemporary Jewish thinker named Michael Wishagrod. Uh, Wishagrod was born in 1928, died in 2015. He's one of the most prominent modern Orthodox Jewish thinkers. Um, and his work is deeply important in many Jewish circles. It's only also been deeply important for, um, uh, for uh, Jewish-Christian dialogue. And I thought we could look a little bit at what Wishagrod has to say as a way of thinking about how a Jewish figure might make a case that Christianity matters for Judaism. And this is going to go back to this picture of God we've just encountered. So can I get a volunteer to read the first passage under Wishagrod? where it says the most difficult, outstanding issues. Thank you. The most, the most difficult, outstanding issues between Judaism and Christianity are the divinity of Jesus and the Incarnation, terms which are not quite synonymous, but all of which assert that Jesus was not only a human being, but also God. So one key difference one key outstanding issue between, one key point of disagreement between Judaism and Christianity, Wishagrod says, is the doctrine of the incarnation. This is an idea central to the history of Christian thought. It's understood in radically different ways by different Christian groups. But in some sense, the incarnation suggests that God became incarnate in a human being named Jesus. That God, that, he, that Jesus is in, in some important sense both divine and human, that, Jesus, that God became a human being, that God is incarnate in Jesus. Again, this is understood in different ways and different strands in Christianity, sometimes in more literal terms, sometimes in more metaphorical terms. But at the heart of this idea of the incarnation is that there's no radical gap 
between humanity and God, but in fact, God becomes incarnate in a particular human being. God is in a particular human being. Jesus is both divine and human. Now, on the one hand, wish yes. Is that different than saying there's a spark of divinity in all human beings? Ah, so part of what you're getting at here is the question of what is this idea similar to, right? What resonances, what echoes we can we hear? So one resonance might be the idea that each of us have a little bit of God inside of us that we're made in the image of God. So already we're hearing that, um, uh, that there may be some echoes between this notion of the incarnation and some ideas we're going to encounter in Judaism. And Wishagrad is going to run with this idea. On the one hand, Wishagrad says in this passage, this is an issue a difficult issue between Judaism and Christianity. Jews, he says, Judaism does not accept the incarnation. Judaism rejects the idea that Jesus is both divine and human. This is not a Jewish idea, Wishagrad says. At the same time, Wishagrad says, at the same time, this is an idea that's absolutely crucial for Jews to engage. I get a volunteer to read the next passage on the handout. Thank you. The doctrine of the incarnation does separate Jews and Christians, but properly understood also sheds light on incarnational elements in Judaism. The Christian's move to claim that God is incarnated in Jesus has helped me better understand a dimension of Judaism, God's indwelling in the people Israel that I probably would not have understood as clearly. The doctrine of incarnation, which says, separates Jews and Christians. This is not a point of agreement. I'm not wish saying, which says, I'm not saying that Jews accept the divinity of Jesus. Quite to the contrary. This is a point of genuine disagreement between the traditions, and we need to honor that disagreement. We can't tell a story where Christians don't really care about Jesus or where Jews accept Jesus, right? We need to acknowledge that there's a real difference here. Nevertheless, Wishagrad says, the Christian move of claiming that God is incarnate in Jesus has helped me better understand the dimension of Judaism that I probably would not have understood as clearly. Even though I don't accept the incarnation, Wishagrad says, there are things about Judaism I understand better because I've talked with my Christian friends who do accept the incarnation. I've become a better Jew by engaging this doctrine that I don't accept. And the reason I've become a better Jew by engaging this doctrine I don't accept is because, he says, there are incarnational elements in Judaism. Because there are echoes, resonance, points of contact, between what's going on in the incarnation and between ideas we might think are important to the Jewish tradition. And to see what Wishagrad might mean there, to see what he might mean when he says that even though I don't accept the incarnation, I learn something about Judaism from learning about the incarnation, I want to follow a mode of learning that's common in many traditional contexts. So many of us are familiar with the standard model of learning in many Western contexts, where you kind of have something in front of you, and you kind of bang your head against it until it makes sense, right? You tune out all distractions. You just sort of focus on what's in front of you. Um, this is a very solitary mode of learning. We have wonderful institutions called libraries where this model of learning is enforced, and there are people whose job it is to walk around and tell you, you know, be a little more solitary, stop being distracted by other people, stop distracting. 
It's a wonderful model, but it's not the model of learning that we see in many traditional Jewish settings. In many traditional Jewish settings, we see learning not by oneself, but with a conversation partner, with a study partner. This is often known as chavruta learning. Um, comes from the Hebrew root meaning something like friend or peer or colleague. Um, and the idea here <coughs> is that you're going to learn with another person. And part of the thought is that um, learning a text, studying a text, is never just about studying a text. It's about learning to be open to voices different from your own. It's about learning to be vulnerable to perspectives different from your own. And part of the thinking is that if the goal of learning is to be more open, the goal of learning is to be vulnerable and take seriously other voices, we better actually do our learning with another voice present. So what I want to invite you to do is turn to the person next to you. If you haven't met them before, please introduce yourself. I've given you a passage from Wishagrad here, and I've given you some questions after it. Read the passage out loud with your partner. Work through as many of the questions as you get through. If you get through just one question, that's fine. If you get through all of the questions, that's fine. I'll circulate, and then we'll come back together to figure out what's going on. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So, Wishagrad states in this text that God certainly dwells in the midst of his people in some special way, and that God is in the people Israel. What might Wishagrad mean there? So God is kind of in town. Okay. God is kind of there intensely present. Okay. People, and kind of, kind of almost there in a kind of physical way in and among people. People want to build on this. Well, the, the expression of is that we are created the element of Okay. So we are, we are created in God's image. This seems to be a claim whatever else it means, that somehow God is intensely present, that human beings resemble God, that this radical gap we might think of as existing between God on the one hand and humanity on the other actually isn't there. God is deeply and intensely present. Maybe God is, maybe we're like God. In some deep and profound sense, God isn't out there and we're here. God is in and among us in some strong sense, Wishagrad wants to say. And Wishagrad says that we should speak of God in this way, as being in the people of Israel and dwelling in the midst of his people, because we cannot refrain from speaking about God in the language of the Bible. What did you take Wishagrad to mean there? Um, have we read any biblical texts today that present God as being in or among or in the midst of human beings? All of them. Okay, Wishagrad is saying, I'm not saying anything radical here. When I say that God is in and among human beings, maybe that we resemble God, maybe that God in a more intense sense is among us and around us, maybe in us. When I say that there's no radical gap between God on the one hand and human beings on the other, I'm not being radical here. I'm not making this up. I'm just a good reader of the Bible. And if we care about the Bible, this is just language with which we need to be comfortable. Seems to be Wishagrad's claim here so far. He then goes on to say that this picture of God, this picture of God as being intensely present, as resembling human beings, this picture of God where there's no radical gap between us and God, 
for some readers, this might arouse instinctive horror. What did you take Wishagrad to mean? Or why might I react to this picture of God as not utterly separate from human beings, as being breathed in by human beings, as dwelling in and among to next, next to human beings? Why might someone react to that with a kind of horror? Why might Wishagrad think that someone might react to that with a kind of instinctive horror? Yeah. Well, it goes against the entire Hellenistic, Aristotelian, Christian tradition that God has to be a God of superlatives. Okay. Say more about what you mean by God as a God of superlatives. Well, if, if God wasn't everywhere, then we could imagine a being that was everywhere and therefore was superior to the God we're claiming as a God. If God wasn't all-knowing, then we could imagine a being that was all-knowing okay. and thus was superior to the being we started out with. Okay, so maybe this, is de maybe this is degrading to God, right? Maybe saying that God is in and around other human beings makes God seem kind of ordinary, right? Makes God seem kind of human. Maybe that gap between God and humanity isn't something we want to efface. Maybe it matters a great deal to say that God is different from human beings, that God is utterly unlike human beings, right? Thinking of God as being almost physically present in particular locations, as being a being who resembles us, who's breathed in by us, who's around us, whom we can hear walking around at the breezy time of day. That's kind of degrading to God. How am I going to pray to such a being? Sounds like I'm praying to my neighbor. Maybe that's kind of troubling. Maybe this is kind of, maybe these biblical texts are kind of blaspheming God here. So Wishagrad seems to, yes, a hand there, hand there. Yes. Well, you know, I'm still thinking about the cloud. And God is this cloud that is amongst all of us. The atmosphere, if you will, let's say in the temple, I don't have any problem with that. And, and of course, there are people who had problems with the, uh, with the priest who had to leave. Um, the, uh, so the, the concept is, whether you are taught or believe in fear as a controlling factor. And if this cloud amongst which we live, this atmosphere which we live, does not by itself generate fear, then you can learn, you learn to live with it, and it's present when you need it. Okay. And that's the godlike presence. Okay, so if some people might say this generates a kind of instinctive horror, Right? How could God be the kind of thing that's just like another human being? This is insulting to God. We can imagine people reacting very differently. This isn't a, 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 a degrading picture of God. This isn't a, a, a horror. This shouldn't be a horror-inducing picture of God. This should be an empowering picture of God because it means God is so intensely present that we can actually access God. We can be in contact with God. We don't need advanced training in theology. We don't need advanced preparation. We don't need to kind of leave the world around us and all that matters in that world to access God. Maybe it just means, maybe this is actually a really attractive picture of God. Maybe this gap, but closing this gap between God and humanity is something that's attractive, empowering. Maybe this isn't about degrading God. Maybe this is about elevating humanity. So we have kind of horror, we have being attracted to this picture of God. I see a hand here, and let's see where Wishagrad wants to take us with this. Yes? Somehow, the question becomes academic, and I say the following way. Hugh Gelman discusses the subject matter, and he hits the point 
We only know God anthropologically. Okay, no other way. What we're saying in here is God is present in man's mind, not God has a physical presence. And Neil Gellman pushes that on this, and he's the most philosopher in here. And he does that in Sacred Fragments. And he has around about four pages on it. So we're pushing that subject then. I think to say it's a relationship with Catholicism, take a look at when was the concept of incarnation developed by the church. It is developed many years after his death. There were several things that they developed. Actually, if you look at the concept of incarnation, it's an insult to God. Because it says this overpowerful item, infinite, full of control, decides to come to this earth in the form of a simple man who did very few things. His miracles were nothing compared to what God is capable of doing. So you're more mental than anything else. So you're getting it one way, uh, one way we often see in Jewish sources, conversations about Christianity. But Wishigrod wants to push us in a very different direction. Wishigrod, in fact, wants us to push us in the direction of saying that this passage here has some connection to the notion of the incarnation. What might Wishigrod mean there? What might he mean when he suggests that this notion of God dwelling in and among the people of Israel, God being intensely present, um, is an example of an incarnational element in Judaism. How might this kind of biblical idea of God being intensely present in and among people be in some sense similar to the idea of God being incarnate in a human being? Yes. Well, so there is actually a long tradition in the history of Christianity of affirming the idea that all human beings are in God's image. This is actually a central doctrine to many elements of Christianity. But just for the moment, let's even try to sort of leave aside kind of broader claims about what Jews believe and what Christians believe. Because part of what Wishagrad wants to do here is actually upset our assumptions. He wants to say, let's bracket our assumptions and be open to these texts. So how might this biblical idea of God being present, this biblical idea of there not being a radical gap between God and humanity, be similar to, or be seen as being similar to, the idea of God being incarnate in a human being. Yes? So, if you think that God So part of what we're hearing here is Wishigrod doesn't quite want to say they're exactly the same thing. But what Wishigrod wants to say, and what I hear you getting at there, is that there's actually an important point of contact. There's an important similarity 
between this idea of God being radically present in and among specific people and the Christian notion of the incarnation. What both of those ideas have in common is that there is no radical gap between God and humanity. That God isn't out there and we're here and we're forever trying to bridge that gap. But instead, God in some sense is present and accessible here around us. And for Wishagrad, I'll get to the question in one second, this is why Christianity matters for Judaism. This is why Christianity matters for Judaism. This is what he means when he suggests that I've learned something about Judaism by studying the incarnation. This idea of God's radical presence, the idea of God being intensely present in the world around us, so intensely present that I can sometimes feel that presence, that that's can be a scary notion, Wishagrad wants to say. That can be a scary notion. It can seem degrading to God. <clears throat> it can make it seem like we're saying that God is here among human beings. It can even be frightening, right? The Bible imagines priests being so overwhelmed by God's presence that they flee. But it's also, Wishagrad wants to say, a deeply important notion. There's something attractive about that. It means that God cares about us, Wishagrad says. It means, as we heard here, that God is accessible. This notion of divine presence matters. This notion of God being present and accessible matters. And this is why, he says, Jews need to learn about Christianity. Because what exposure to the doctrine of the incarnation does is actually help Jews get over this instinctive revulsion, this instinctive worry about radical divine presence. Right? What we have when we learn about the incarnation, Wishagrad wants to say, is exposure to a religious doctrine that doesn't shy away from closing the gap between God and humanity, that doesn't shy away from saying that God is present and accessible among human beings. What we have in the incarnation is a sincere religious notion among sincere believers that we don't need to worry about God's radical presence, that we can embrace God's radical presence. And that's something, Wishagrad says, that he as a Jew needs to hear. He has this instinctive worry, this instinctive horror at the idea that God is present among us. But actually, Wishagrad says, that's an incredible notion. It's an elevated notion. It's an elevating notion. It suggests that there isn't a radical gap between God and us. And that's an important idea. Christianity matters for Judaism, Wishagrad wants to say, because Christianity helps remind Jews of God's radical presence in the world. We're often scared to talk about God's presence, Wishagrad wants to say. We worry about that. It's different from how we often talk about God. But it's there in the Bible, and it's a comforting notion. And it's something, Wishagrad says, that we should embrace. And it's part of what we can learn from Christianity. Christianity matters for Judaism because Christianity can help us as Jews remember something that's too easy to forget that we can talk enthusiastically and sincerely and openly about a radical, intense, divine presence. There's a hand here, and then a hand there, and a hand there. Yes? Well, the idea that God's presence is among the people is more acceptable to me than the idea that there is one human being like Jesus, that is suddenly um, the God that, that we are looking, reincarnated God. That, that's a 
much more radical thinking than, you know, I can visualize, I can look at that cloud and say, I think there is a divine presence in that cloud. Um, but to actually look at somebody and say, this person is God reincarnated is a much more radical leap for, for me. And Wishagrad wants to embrace, Wishagrad agrees with you. Notice what Wishagrad doesn't say. Wishagrad doesn't say, you know what, in the end, there's no difference between Judaism and Christianity, incarnation, everyone should believe in the incarnation. Notice that that's not what Wishagrad says. Wishagrad begins by saying the most difficult outstanding issues between Judaism and Christianity include the divinity of Christ and the incarnation. And the doctrine of the incarnation thus separates Jews from Christians. Wishagrad is very clear again and again throughout his writings that the incarnation is not in and of itself Jews and Christians share. He thinks Jews are committed in the end to rejecting the incarnation. He thinks Christians in the end are committed to rejecting the Jewish rejection of incarnation. But part of what Wishagrad wants to push on is that we can dwell in that disagreement. We can actually say we disagree with another group, but also saying we learn something. So what Wishagrad wants to say, and we can think together about whether this is an attractive or a troubling position, what Wishagrad wants to say is, I don't have to agree with Christianity to learn something from Christianity. I don't have to agree with Christianity to say that I become a better Jew. I can actually look at my own Jewish life, Wishagrad says, and say there are things I wish I could be better at. I, Wishagrad, as a Jew, wish I could be better at embracing the idea that God is deeply physically present. That's not the kind of language I often hear. So I, when I say I now, I'm speaking as Wishagrad. But I, I should be, I want to be more comfortable with that, Wishagrad says. I want to be comfortable with the idea of this present God because I want God to be accessible. I don't want God just to be accessible from the pre, for the priests. I want God to be accessible for all of us. I want to think that God cares so intensely about human beings that God is there. And you know what? Christianity can help me do that. I need models. I need models from a religious tradition that are willing to kind of celebrate divine presence. And what Wishagrad wants to say is, I think, as Wishagrad, that Christianity does a better job celebrating divine presence than Judaism does, and I, as a Jew, can learn something from that. It's not that I agree with Christianity. I'm still, as a Jew, going to say that I disagree with this element of Christianity, but I can be pushed, right? There might be a gap in my own religious life that can be filled or helped filled by another group. And this is the, the complicated position that Wishagrad wants to dwell in, a position where he says, I disagree with you, but I have something to learn from you. I disagree with you, but you can help me be a better version of myself, because there's something you do better than I do. And it's a position that's attractive to some people, troubling to others, that seem, but I actually think you and Wishagrad agree there. Hand here, and then hand there. Yes? You remind me constantly in, in, in your recent remarks of a very popular expression where I live, people ask all the time, what would Jesus do? <coughs> or what would Jesus say? And I, I personally don't feel I need to focus that closely on some person or entity that will translate what already has been handed down to me or should have been, or I should have picked it up in the entire, the, the entire Bible and the teachings of Judaism through the Talmud. So not that I'm a scholar or anything like that, but I have a sense what's right and what's wrong. I often have my Christian friends will say, kiddingly, but they just say, you know, serious. what would Jesus do? And I'm thinking, I don't know, I'm not sure I care. I, can, I, I think I know what he would do if he was Jewish, but well, he was Jewish, but the, uh, uh, so 
So I, I don't I see him as Christianity as much better by focusing lessons of morality and and, and biblical thought through a particular person is, as someone said, very attractive. It's 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 a great well, I don't I don't mean to be I'm not trying to be glib, but it's a great advertising device. Yeah. And he has a focus of everything. So I'm hearing two things there. I'm hearing first that we can actually, if we spend some time dwelling with this position that Wishagrod sometimes imagines as generating instinctive horror, we can find lots to be compelled by. We can be, find lots to be compelled by when we think of a picture of this figure present in and among human beings, right? We don't like to think of our, let's say, political leaders as being utterly separate, inaccessible, out of touch with the realities of our life. Why should we want to think of God in those terms? We want, it's important that we think of God as present in the world, as sharing aspects of our experience, as dwelling in and among us. So the first thing I'm hearing from you is that we might hear in Wishagrad's position another reason to be kind of attracted by, to learn something from the Incarnation. The second thing I'm hearing from you is actually a version of the position that we won't have time to get to tonight, but which is the flip side of the question. So we've been spending time with the what does, uh, why does Christianity matter for Judaism part of it, but there's also, and again, we won't fully have time to think about this tonight, a kind of flip side of that. Why does Judaism matter for Christianity? And one of the arguments we're going to see in many contemporary Christian thinkers, and I've given you some examples uh, from a thinker named Scott Bader, say, on your handout here, is an argument that says, actually, what Christians need to be asking today is not what would Jesus do, but actually what do the Jewish people do? And the version of the argument, and this is a very short um, um, kind of reductive version of the argument, goes something like, if I am a faithful Christian and want to know something about how I should live in the world, and want to know something about what it means to be in a relationship with God in the world, what it means to be chosen in the world, what it means to be in a covenant. I can't just engage in abstract ivory tower philosophizing. I can't just look at myself. I need to actually look at the world around me and look for communities that are in relationship with God. If I want to know how I should be living in relationship with God, I need to be finding communities out there that are already in relationship with God and actually have more experience being in relationship with God than I do. Where can I find, as a Christian, such a group today? The Jews, right? The Jews have been in relationship with God for thousands of years. So if, as a Christian, I want to learn how to be in relationship with God, I need to start looking at the Jewish people. I need to look at how that people has engaged in the arduous work over the centuries and millennia of being in relationship with God, because that has something to teach me. And one of the kind of strands we see in Christian thought today, in certain strands of Christian thought, is a kind of embrace of the Jewish people as a model for what it means to think of living in the world and being in relationship with God. Right? If Wishagrod wants to say Judaism, uh, Christianity teaches Judaism about God's presence, we see a, a number of contemporary Christian thinkers saying, actually, Judaism teaches Christianity about God's covenant and about what it means to live in relationship with God. And so part of what I'm hearing in your comments about this phrase that you sometimes hear today, what would Jesus do, um, is actually gesturing towards where some contemporary Christian thinkers want to go about why Ju Judaism matters for Christianity. Just as Wishagrod wants to say, there are things that Jews often miss, there are many contemporary Christian thinkers who want to say there are things that Christianity often misses. And one of the things that Christianity sometimes misses is, is what it means to actually live in the world in relationship with God. And maybe that's why Judea Christianity needs Judaism. Maybe Judaism is a tradition with 
fa a fa several th a thousand year, several thousand year head start in figuring out what it means to be elect, what it means to be in covenant with God. So I'm hearing both a kind of further view of Wishagrad in your thought, but also a gesture towards the other position here. Hand there. As a Christian, I say that it's, it's, there is always an affinity for us as Christians to respect the Jewish way of life and, and the Jewish religion because like, our roots are Jewish. Judaism, or, you know, we, Jesus was very much ethnically, culturally Jewish, and it is in my best interest to know as much about Jewish beliefs ideas as possible. <coughs> I'm, I'm struggling with the reverse, though. I, I mean, I, I, I see what Wishagrad is saying, but I, I don't understand the inclination for Jews to try to understand Christians because don't, and this could be like a wildly ignorant statement, but like, don't you all view like the New Testament like essentially like Jewish fan fiction, like things that like don't really, <laughs> don't really matter, like you know, like why 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 even have an inclination for this? Yeah. So this is this is absolutely a position. I, I've never heard it articulated in the, in the in the language of fan fiction, but like this is absolutely a position you see among some Jewish thinkers, where some Jewish thinkers will say theologically. There's no reason for Judaism to care about Christianity. Theologically, Christianity is at best a kind of misguided offshoot, and at worst something much more seriously, uh, a more serious error with respect to Judaism. You'll see many Jewish thinkers take that view. Um, you often see this among Jewish thinkers who kind of want to embrace the Jewishness of Jesus and almost use it as a kind of cudgel against Christianity. Right? We're going to be better version. Right? We and the Jews actually know what it means to be Christians in a way that you Christians don't, because we really have. Jesus. Wishagrad doesn't like that perspective. What worries Wishagrad about that perspective is a kind of lingering, and, and we can disagree with Wishagrad here, but what worries Wishagrad in that perspective is a kind of lingering arrogance. Right? What worries Wishagrad about that perspective is that it, it, he's worried, at least, that it, that kind of position means that he and some of his contemporary Jews aren't open enough to the ways in which Judaism can be improved. Not that Judaism can be more like Christianity, but the way in which all religious traditions run in terrors. One, one of the reasons I, I talked about this trend in Christianity to kind of take the chosenness and the covenantal relationship uh, between the Jewish people and God seriously and use it as a set of lessons. Part of what animates that among some Christian thinkers is a kind of worry about historically a certain kind of Christian unwillingness to learn from Jews and a certain kind of Christian superiority. What worries Wishagrad is that that kind of attitude can be present among Jews as well. What worries Wishagrad, right? Wishagrad rejects the idea that the only people who've ever been arrogant historically are Christians. And everyone else has always been. Wishagrad thinks there are plenty of arrogant Jews out there as well. And part of what Wishagrad wants to do is say that he, as a Jewish thinker, wants to be open to his own blind spots. Now, again, we might say that this is something maybe Wishagrad can say that maybe it would be more difficult for a Christian thinker to say, right? Wishagrad can say, I get things wrong as a Jew. But Mushagrad might be worried about a Christian thinker showing up and saying, hey, you get things wrong as a Jew. In the same way that we might say it's one thing for a contemporary Christian thinker to say, we need to reassess how the church views the Jews. And it might be different for a Jewish thinker to say, we need, the church needs to reassess that. But part of what Wishagrad wants to say, and I think this is a challenge for us today, I didn't mean to quite rhyme there. Um, part of what Wishagrad wants to say is, we in the Jewish community today are secure enough, and he's writing in the United States in the post-war period, we're secure enough to be a little humble, to recognize our own errors, and we can take some risks. Right? Wishagrad is actually very sympathetic to the way in which Jews in the past often said negative things about Christianity. If you're a, seven, if you're a, you know, a 13th century Jew living very precariously and you start resenting your neighbors, I wish Wishagrad can understand why you might feel that way. But the, for all of its limitations, America is different. America is different, and what Wishagrad at least wants to say is we can be a little riskier. 
And it's a, it's a risky position Wishagrad wants to take, right? Wishagrad, it's a high bar for a successful religious life on Wishagrad's model, right? I need to be an expert in Christian theology to be a good Jew. I need to be an expert in Jewish theology to be a good Christian. That's a high bar for religious life. I, I suspect it, I certainly don't meet that bar. I suspect that very few communities meet that bar. But part of what Wishagrad wants to say is we can take that risk today. We can take on that task today. So I think Wishagrad is very similar, is very, very sympathetic to the place from which you're coming, but he wants to say that he feels comfortable pushing the Jewish community a little more. It's no accident that Wishagrad is a really controversial thinker in Jewish circles. There are some people in Jewish circles who love Wishagrad, right? This is a thinker who wants to take the Bible seriously and create meaningful dialogue between Jews and Christians. There are other thinkers who think, what on earth is going on with this guy? He's wanting us to re-embrace this physical picture of God. And, and what we need to do is, we, 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 there, there are people who are worried about him. But I think he at least wants to say uh, that he, he wants to tweak his fellow Jews a little. He wants to say, we can be more humble. And there are ways to be attracted to that and ways to be troubled by it. Uh, hand back there. Uh, you, you, you can choose. Wishagrad. Yeah, well. Is just another line of where, like I say, we owe the Jews everything. Christianity, true Christianity. I thought I'd been Christian for years before I found the real deal. You know? There's a distinction between a lot of people who are demographically Christian and people who come to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Jesus. Um, but, you know, that's a cool thing, a, a thread of Jewish theology that I think. Christianity bears witness to is the line of acceptance with God through the faith of Abraham rather than by our good works. You know? Because that's the sort of standard line people think we follow the law, we'll find favor with God. But there was the line from Abraham where he found favor with God because of his faith. And so to the extent that some Christianity points to that, maybe there's something um, a parallel. And then I guess the person that I hinted at how we owe you everything. No, forgive us. Forgive us. I don't know. I, can, I don't know how I can have standing to speak for all Christians, but the stuff that's been done, you know, in the name of my religion to the Jewish people, of whom is Jesus? For, you know, just for, forgive us. If we 
can factor this into your thinking about how wrong we've been. Well, first of all, thank you for that. And second, what you're getting at is actually one of the really important dynamics animating this whole conversation between these thinkers here. I talked about this trend on the part of Christian thinkers to kind of take Jews seriously as a model for how to live in the world as a recent trend. And it really goes back to the years after World War II. And if you look at some of the first Christian thinkers to adopt this view explicitly, it's often referred to as non-supersessionism. So classically, you see a notion in some strands of Christianity known as supersessionism. The idea there is that Christianity has superseded or replaced Judaism. Maybe more strictly speaking, kind of the church, the kind of community of followers of Jesus have superseded or replaced the Jews. You start to see the first thinkers rejecting that, the first non-supersessionist thinkers, after World War II, right? And it's explicitly couched in terms, among some of them, about a kind of stepping back and saying, how could we have lived in a world where, in Christian countries, something like the Holocaust happened? That is, for a lot of these Christian thinkers, that is a sign of a need for a kind of serious revision of Christianity or at least a kind of revisiting. Part of what Wishagrad then wants to do is say, that means we're living in a new era. That means we're living in an era where certain kind of theological conversations are possible. And you know what, if we're living with Christian friends and neighbors and fellow citizens who can reassess aspects of Christianity, we can have the courage to reassess aspects of Judaism as well. Not to change Judaism, not to become Christians, but to learn something from Christianity as well. Um, and it's no accident that, that Wyshegrad himself is someone who grows up in Germany. He's born in 28 in Germany. His family flees to, well, first they go to Poland for a few weeks, but they end up in New York in 1939. For Wyshegrad, that history of Europe, and he doesn't talk about the Holocaust that frequently, but that history of Jews in Europe and Jews in the broader world weighs heavily on him. And part of what... Born in Germany? He's born in Germany, in Berlin in 1928. No, he grows up in a in a in a in a, um, in, a in a modern Orthodox family in in Germany. Um, yes. I'm reading here the stuff that you didn't get to mm -hmm. about the Christian side mm -hmm. of things, and you're saying that after World War II, the, some of the theologians started talking about the. <coughs> this goes back to Paul's letters, right. where he's saying we are from the faith of Abraham. Yeah. So, so part of actually... So it, it doesn't need to go... So what yeah. happened between yeah. Paul and the Holocaust? Yeah. You know? So um, uh, part of what you're getting at is this move to... So I gave you one reason why there's this move towards non-supersessionism in Christianity. A kind of sense of we live in an era where we need to take seriously kind of what's happened historically. But part of what's also got going on is a sort of rereading of classical Christian sources. So if you look at the way in which, um, so for, for those of you who aren't familiar with the New Testament, you have the Gospels, which are four sometimes similar, sometimes different narratives about Jesus's life. And then it's not the only other thing you get in the New Testament, but another major section of the New Testament are letters written by um, a person named Paul. Paul is a, it lives after Jesus' life. Paul doesn't know Jesus personally, but Paul is a Jewish figure who becomes a major kind of um, uh, apostle, a major figure carrying Jesus. Well, right, and he carries Jesus' message across the kind of ancient Mediterranean, and he writes letters, so you may have heard people refer to Galatians or Romans. These are letters to communities of followers of Jesus in Rome, in Galatia. Um, and classically, if you, at least this is how I learned it growing up, right? Classically, you would often hear people say things like, Jesus was this nice Jewish guy, and then Paul invented Christianity. 
And what people, that's certainly how I learned about it in Hebrew school. The way that that's often told is that Jesus was this nice, pious Jewish guy who said, I haven't shown up to come to abolish the law, but right, everyone has to fulfill the law. And then Paul shows up and says all these nasty things about Judaism and Jewish law. And Paul basically creates, um, there's been a real attempt to reread Paul in the last 30 or 40 years to say that that's actually not what Paul is up to, and that Paul is actually someone who very much affirms the continuing validity of, of Judaism. There are lots of different aspects of Paul that get read here. Part of it is that Paul says lots of different things about the law. Sometimes he says really nasty things about following Jewish law. Sometimes he says really positive things. One way to read that is to say he's speaking to different audiences. Sometimes he's talking to non-Jewish followers of Jesus. Sometimes he's talking to Jewish followers of Jesus. But then there are also these lines throughout Paul's letters where he affirms the enduring chosenness of the Jewish people, right? So in this passage to which you directed our attention, Paul says in the letter to Romans, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means. All Israel will be saved as it is written. At a Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Right? Paul, see, and I'll get to the question. Paul seems to be affirming the enduring chosenness of the Jewish people. So part of what's going on with these Christian thinkers is that um, they're not saying they're coming up with something new. They're saying they're actually recovering the original message of Christianity. Just as Wishagrad is saying, I'm not coming up with something new here. Instead, Christianity is helping me be a better Jew. A lot of these contemporary Christian thinkers are saying, we're not coming up with something new here. We've actually been misreading Paul all these years. Um, uh, this is often referred to as the new Paul, right? There was the old Paul who said nasty things about Judaism, and now there's the new Paul who's actually the old Paul uh, in the sense of being the original Paul. Um, hand there and then hand there. The entire history of Christianity. Yeah. But, but quickly, if you would, um, <coughs> give me the timeline. Jesus, Paul, and then the fourth century uh, uh, documentation of Christianity. Um, yeah, so there's a lot going on there. Um, so Jesus, let's say Jesus lives sometime, let's say Jesus is executed sometime around 32 or 33 CE. Paul writes most of his letters between about the year 40 and about the year 50. So we're talking about Paul being, we're talking about Paul never having met Jesus personally, but Paul being kind of in the first generation, part of the, the moment that Paul is inhabiting and why it's so important for him to think about these questions of whether the Jews are chosen is that the, the church, the, the Jesus movement, and scholars often talk about it as the Jesus movement at this point rather than Christianity because you don't see Paul ever talking about himself as a Christian. You see um, that language doesn't exist at this point. Um, part of what the Jesus movement is struggling with at this point is what, uh, do you have to be Jewish? to be a follower of Jesus, right? So Jesus is originally speaking to Jews, and then the movement starts kind of reaching non-Jews as well. And one of the questions that confronts the early church at that point is, okay, so what are the status of these non-Jewish believers in Jesus? Do they have to convert to Judaism, right? So right, the way this is often framed in New Testament texts is, right, do you have to get circumcised to be a follower of Jesus? Um, does Jesus give now non-Jews an alternate way of relating to God? So Jews still have to follow the law and be circumcised, but non-Jews have now this other way of relating to God. Is now Has Jesus rendered even circumcision irrelevant for Jews? Um, this is one of the major debates at this point, compounded by the fact that Paul thinks that the world is about to end. Does that all get resolved in the fourth century? Um, 
I wouldn't say it gets resolved. You have, um, as, with, as with most religious traditions, you have sort of intense debates going on. Um, and through the 8th and 9th century, you still see lots of um, Christian communities that understand themselves as Jewish communities. I mean, you still see this today as well, but it's actually a widespread um, phenomenon. I'll give you a kind of nice example, and then we have a hand there as well. Um, some of you may know in the Passover Seder, uh, the poem Dainu, right? It would have been enough for us. This is a poem that's recited during the Passover meal where um, uh, basically the text says, it would have been enough for us if God had just taken us out of Egypt. It would have been enough for us if God had just split the Red Sea. It would have been enough for us if God had just um, given us the Torah. And there are many things that are weird about this poem, but one of the weirdest things about this poem is it's actually not what the biblical narrative is at all. Right, the biblical narrative is not a narrative that says, yeah, if God had just taken the Israelites out of Egypt and then they'd all been wiped out, everything would have been hunky-dory and we can get... Right? No, the text says all those things matter. The, the, the poem is basically wrong. So what's going on there? A wonderful scholar named Yisrael Yuval um, a number of years ago wrote a brilliant article where he looked at some communities where Jews and Jewish followers of Jesus are living alongside one another and discovered a wonderful sermon given by a Christian bishop that talked about how the Jews were so ungrateful. It wasn't enough for them that God took them out of Egypt. It wasn't enough for them that God took them, um, uh, that God uh, split the sea. And it basically is everything in Dainu. We don't really know which was written first, but that's a sign of how closely intertwined these communities were. We think of Judaism and Christianity being these diverse, distinct religions. And eventually they become distinct religions. But initially things are much messier. And part of what's animating these texts, part of why these texts are so high stake, is it's not at all clear to people like Paul or in the generations after him exactly what relationship there should be between kind of the Jewish people and this new movement. Hand there. Oh. I apologize for preempting you. And just to build on that, this is entirely true. And to build on that, part of what's complicated with Paul, right, is Paul didn't think he was writing the New Testament, right? Paul didn't think, Paul didn't sit down to write the Bible that would endure for several thousand years. When Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, he thought he was writing exactly that, a letter to followers of Jesus in Rome addressing the particular problems confronting that community. When Paul sat down to write Galatians, he didn't expect to be writing something that we would be talking about today in Arizona in 2019. He expected to be writing a letter to followers of Jesus living in Galatia facing their problems. And so part of what we actually see in these different letters is these different letters often take very different positions on, let's say, the nature of the uh, Jewish law, depending on the community. So, there's, so Paul Paul basically thinks the world is going to end soon. He thinks Jesus is coming back soon. And so it's really important for Paul that everyone get into the right relationship with God as quickly as possible because you want to have the right relationship with God before time ends, right? Because if you've got the right relationship with God, you're going to fall within the scope of God's salvific action. And if you don't, 
something bad is going to happen. It's not quite clear what. So Paul wants everyone to get in the right. This is, by the way, this is very reductive to Paul, but this is getting at something of what's going on in Paul. Um, so Paul wants everyone to get in the right relationship with God as quickly as possible. Part of, at least on this new reading of Paul that I'm talking about, part of what's going on with Paul sometimes saying bad things about the law, sometimes saying good things, is he's writing to different audiences. So when Paul is writing to Jewish followers of Jesus, he wants to remind them, you're Jewish. You need to follow the law. The world is about to end. You need to keep following Judaism so that when the world ends, you'll be in the right relationship with God. When Paul is saying bad things about the law, it seems like he's often writing to largely non-Jewish communities of followers of Jesus. And he's telling them, look, it's going to take too long for you to figure out how to be Jewish. It's really hard. There are all these laws. You have to eat some food and not eat other food. You have to get circumcised. That's its whole thing. I mean, this is, don't, you've got something else to do now. You've got this relationship with Jesus that can get you in the right relationship with God and fall within the scope of God's salvific action. So part of what's going on with Paul is questions of authorship and communal differentiation. Part of what's going on is that Paul was right. I might write different emails to my different students. Not that I, I'm not comparing myself to Paul. Paul and I are very different in lots of ways. But I might give different students different feedback on their papers depending on what those students need to hear. One student really needs to worry work on making their argument more clear. Another student, they might really need to have more flowery or nicer language. It might sound like I'm saying incompatible things to them, but I actually have very similar ideas. They just need different things. Paul was writing to real people. Again, part of what's hard is Paul didn't think he was writing the New Testament. Paul thought he was writing letters. And one of the challenges in reading the New Testament, but also I can sometimes be, for those on the academic side, really exciting and interesting, is that he's writing, the, he, he provides us with this incredible snapshot into what kind of religious life looked like in, in the ancient world and what it looked like for communities to be sorting through these issues. I think we have actually hit the end of our time together. Thank you to all of you for wrestling with these texts. These are hard texts. And the thing I just want to sort of end with here, and this will be the final thing I say, is um, we might find Wishagrad compelling. We might find Wishagrad not compelling. Part of, I think, a challenge Wishagrad leaves us with here is a kind of call to look beyond ourselves. Wishagrad, for better or for worse, wants to say that there are things he needs to know as a Jew that he learns better from encountering other people. And I think part of the challenge for all of us is to have that in mind, to have in mind the possibility that sometimes we might learn something from those who are fundamentally different from us, and sometimes we might make our own religious life whole by looking beyond ourselves. So thank you again for struggling with these texts. These are hard texts. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.